Hey everybody, welcome to the 122nd episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today we have reigning champ of all guests, Mr. Scott Adlerberg. I love inviting Scott on because the guy and I can just talk about anything for any length of time, and he's just this fascinating font of information. So in this one, the conversation kind of runs the gamut. A lot of writing talk, though. We specifically talk about something that we talked privately about on the phone a lot, which was the efficacy of sitcoms and how they might actually be a really good way to sort of reframe how we look at how we write. I was You'll hear at the very beginning of this episode that I welcome him on to a bonus episode of the JDO show. I was initially going to run this conversation on my Patreon Uh, But I decided that the Patreon is a different thing entirely. And even though some of my early bonus episodes do include talks with writers, I realized that I wanted the bonus episodes on Patreon to be more reminiscent of the conversations that I have with my close personal friends who are not involved in the writing world so much. So over there you'll find me talking to Rob Volmar about the I Ching, my brother about philosophy, my friend Shermaine about finance. And my goal is to really, once I get those guys like really comfortable, because you know, it's the episodes are good, but people take a little bit to get used to sort of being on a podcast and being on a podcast format. In fact, it's one of the difficulties about doing a podcast uh, with writers in general, people who are not used to speaking uh, publicly, I guess, is that there's always that first... 10 minutes or so of rockiness. But once they get it, they get it. Um, so anyway, all that is to say that once I kind of get everybody firing on all cylinders, the ideal of the of the bonus JDO show is that it will be kind of a good facsimile of my actual late night conversations that I have with my close personal friends. So it's a neat project, and it's finally coming together in a way that I'm happy with. I also put up... Um, my screenplay, The Principal, over at the Patreon, and uh, gonna be putting more writing up there, you know, throughout the month, every month. But anyway, if you happen to be interested in that, that's patreon.com slash JDO. Another pleasant reminder that Coyote Songs by Gabino Iglesias is now available. Do pick that up if you haven't done that yet. But before you do any of that, please do enjoy this 122nd episode of the JDO Show with Scott Adlerberg. Okay. All right. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on a bonus episode of the JDO sure. Show, sir. Absolutely. Always happy to, uh, you know, I was up in Buffalo this weekend uh, visiting uh, Cedric, you know, at college. And I got, you know, your text, you want to talk? I said, uh, it'll have to be tomorrow, but sure. Always happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> always yeah, happy yeah, yeah. How was Buffalo? Uh, yeah, I've never been up there. It's, it's not, it looks like a pretty, you know, I, as a New Yorker, I like upstate New York. I sure. always have, even like the, like these sort of re- tough, you know, not, sort of like, you know, not the richest towns. Uh-huh. Buffalo's pretty big. I wouldn't call it a town. It's really a city. It is. Yeah. But, uh, I just like those old houses and stuff and, it looks like it has a nice downtown. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I know if dro- I want to live there with the weather, but you know, no, the no, no way. Yeah. You know, I, I right. drove, I drove through that on my way to Toronto last year. That was, mm-hmm. that was one of my stops. Cause you know, uh, Niagara Falls is right there. So I did my little Niagara Falls right. detour and, and then went up through to Toronto and yeah, my impression of it was, it seems like it's the kind of town that, uh, I guess Bruce Springsteen is singing about. Normally, <laughs> yeah, so right? that's exactly that's sort of it, basically. You're right, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> it's like it's fine, yeah. it's it's a probably a bunch of blue collar people at you know drinking schlitz at a at a dive bar somewhere, <laughs> you know, like that's the impression I get, anyhow. I think that's a big part. And Buffalo, I also I see now, I mean, I kind of knew, but I saw it first. Then it's got a lot of um, a lot of uni- a lot of colleges up there, it really oh, does, does. It? like. Cedric's going to a small one. There's a couple of on the very same street where his is. There's, a, there's at least three colleges within like five minutes walking distance. Now is he is he playing basketball or is he just going there academically? He's playing basketball. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So he got that scholarship then. Uh, he got some. He's got. He's got some aid. Yeah. Hell so yeah, uh, he's dude. Play, yeah. 
That's Team's 0-4 so far this season, and he had practice yesterday. We picked him up for dinner after. He was like, I grew up at the team. And my wife, Christine, was like, oh, Seth, you shouldn't be like that. I was like, fuck yeah, you got to get those <laughs> Get these losers moving, dude. What's going on? Yeah, no, I. Uh, it was so funny. When I was uh, house-sitting for you, uh, when you came back and Christine was there, Cedric was there as well, and I, I just I thought it was funny because – I, I can't remember where I was. I was out doing something, but I mm-hmm. came I came back into your into your space, and um, Cedric was being uh, asked by Christine to, to <laughs> look for something in a closet yeah. or whatever. And so it's this it's this really uh, he's a kid, right? But this very tall kid, uh, right. just like hunched over a closet, and Christine is like. I don't, look deeper, check deeper in the in there, and he's like, "Ma, it's not, it's not in." And I'm just like, "It's so funny, you know this 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 big, strapping, intimidating young man being browbeaten by his mother and finding something from the closet." You know, you, you got a snapshot, but you got a very accurate snapshot of something that happens quite often in this house. <laughs> I was just like, "We see who wears the pants here." That's why you know. I, you get, that's it, you know. You really gotta. That was funny. So at the like this last at the end of the weekend, Christine was like, uh, "I don't know, be nice, you know, if we could stay an extra day." And Cedric was like, "She came. She went up early in the summer to like check out where he lives. It's his uh-huh. first time living off campus and everything." Right. I didn't go that time. So he, she was like, uh, "I can come back soon, you know, and maybe." She was half half joking, you know. Right. Maybe clean the house and stay here and stuff. And so that's why well, you came twice. I, that's enough. I mean, that's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was fucking done, dude. He was See, that's like... enough. I'm glad you guys came. You know, you showed interest that I'm alive. Where are you going? Yeah. That's yeah. enough. Yeah, that's cool. it's like that's I'm cool. in college now. I'm a man. There's girls <laughs> right. here. My mother cannot come and hang out. Yeah, just... I do not think so. You know, right? <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Did she? Did she rate? Did y'all like? Was he raised strict or was? Or... Yeah, well, you know, he, she, she really. That's I mean, see, like in all seriousness, that's one of the probably when he was a kid, he came over to us when he was about eight because he'd been staying with his grandmother in Cameroon for four years. Uh-huh, so right. the time he was four, Christine raised him in France till she was. He was four. She came over here without him in the states. Then he was living with his grandmother. But um, yeah, she is pretty, she's ex- very loving. I mean, she'd like yeah. give her life, literally. You know sure, what I mean? Sure, sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, she's she's pretty, not like moralistically strict, but very tough and strict, yes, yeah. in certain ways. Right. And I was raised very differently that, you know, I, I knew where I stood, but very, di- and, or, like in a nutshell, the main bone of contention, and it's with Julian when he was little. Right. Also, right, right. less mm-hmm. so now, is like, Christine's like, you're the parent, you tell them what to do, and if they disagree, it's it's your way. And I my basic theory was like, ultimately that's true, but there are ways to do that differently than just like browbeating and being sure, tough. Yeah, yeah. You sort of connive, you make it seem like they got their way, and you but it was really your and she's like, No, it's like always a straight line with her. And I'm like, well, No, you well, know, you I sort mean, of I'm... pretend that it, and you you argue of a course. bit. Yeah. You know, but that was that's a big difference. Yeah, well, yeah. my mother, my mother has this great tactic, and it's been pointed out by a lot of people in our family, uh, where my mother is what you would call a very agreeable person. Okay, mm-hmm. so what that means is if there's a disagreement or some mm. point of contention, my mother will nod her head, say yes, yes, sure, 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 <laughs> and then she will do the complete opposite. Of what she's talking about, you know what I mean? Like, okay. like you're not gonna you're not gonna stop her from doing what she wants to do, but mm. she will be very smiley, and and it's it, it's one of those things where people feel like they're getting their way, you know, right. but they're really not at all, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And I think I learned that from her. I'm very much the same way. I don't think I'm not gonna fight you. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not gonna yeah. fight you on anything, right out. I'll be like, okay, 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 but then. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do. But what do you want to do anyway? Yeah, right. <laughs> so that part is really, it's interesting, but it's like, you know, I saw and she stayed with us several times for extended periods. Christine's mother. Of course. Was, yeah. It's got to be passed her. down, right? Is it, is it and, an African thing or is it just like, it's, like... it's part, it's partly a traditional African thing. And to be, to be honest, Christine, and I, she said this and I believe it and I saw it in action. She is probably 
you know, whatever percentage, a, a mere small percentage of what her mother was and her mother, she explained. And I saw her, saw her, her you know, just, the way she talked about her mother, she loved a lot also, but was mm -hmm. really, really strict and tough. And yeah. she said her, her mother's mother, her grandmother, was ridiculous. Uh -huh. That So you're talking like her grandmother was like an African sort of, you know, peasant woman. Uh -huh, her mother right. uh, was very intelligent, was work, moved to France. They're all intelligent, moved to France. But she was very tough. So that's the law. And it's a different background. Yeah. But yeah. if you really go down and see the evolution, Christine was probably the absolutely got to be the most lenient of those three, which is sure. saying something. Well, it's I mean, scary it's, almost. it's well, you it's one of those I mean? things, too, where I feel like I feel like that's what's happened maybe in the last hundred years or so. Right. Where mm. I feel like that strictness probably had its purpose, considering, right. you know, the socioeconomic conditions of growing up in Cameroon in the 1940s or whatever, you <laughs> exactly, probably right. needed a kind of strong hand, a strong matriarch to sort of guide that, that through. But mm. our particular, yours all the way through mine have experienced this thing where, you know, when you're in America and specifically when you're in America in the 2000s or even the 90s or whatever, it's, mm -hmm. it's not the same world. So it's all about balance. Whereas you might have needed that to keep, to literally keep a family yeah. as a functioning economic unit moving forward. You don't need that anymore. People have to anymore. work. They have yeah, to work. Yeah, that you have to. You know, well, it's the same. I mean, I have the same thing kind of in, in my own way where – if you look at my great-grandparents, on my father's side, my granddaddy, who I lived with for a time, who was, you mm. know, 80 years old, and he literally, you know, back in the, after he got out of World War II, you know, mm. he uh, <laughs> he had a coal mine that he worked in. Oh, and, I and on my grandmother's side, you know, she's French Cajun, and her dad was a sharecropper his whole life, yeah. and he lived to be mm. 99 but, you know, talking to this guy when he's 98 on his, you know, basically on his deathbed, but he, <laughs> right. he stayed there for a very, he got very comfortable on that deathbed. For a, he just <laughs> yeah. refused to die, right? Uh, <laughs> even though he would Too wake up, to die. he would wake up every morning, he'd be like, I'm ready for the Lord to take me. But the Lord was not ready to take him at any of those points. But anyway, like those people, it's just a fundamentally different life. Yeah, and we can't. Right. We cannot understand that. It's like trying right. to understand an alien or somebody on, yeah. the, you know, a moon person, right? It's, right. It's just, right. We can't conceive of a world where you had to wake up, perform a function, and keep right. this kind of iron fist control over your family. Right. Um, and so I think probably this happened maybe more before my time, but a little bit during my time too, because now of course you have millennial parents you know people who are 20 years old have kids now right mm -hmm. and, and they yeah. don't they don't give a shit it's just like hey whatever junior wants to do is fine with me but right, i think like right. maybe the generation just before mine had those parents who were right on the edge who had yeah. parents themselves who were these control freaks out of necessity right and they were just like on the cusp of this generational turn where it wasn't necessary anymore right no that's i think that's true but what's interesting? What, what's interesting about that also is like, in one area, like where let's say Christine and I have been very, we're always like completely simpatico, was, you know, maybe just her background, or also being, you know, she was basically raised, completely raised in, you know, in France, is there's that element of, you know, there was some kind, some like a toughness or what seemed to me a strictness. The flip side of that was. She doesn't have like the American version of moralism. So like basically like we've always been completely simpatico on you know uh, what movies a kid can watch uh -huh, or reading uh -huh. or conversation or sexuality right. or language in the house. No, it's you know that like very, well, somebody who's say, somebody who's English. Yeah, well, also way. somebody who's Eng yeah. who English is not her first language, if I'm not mistaken. It, mm -hmm. like, I always feel like that, like kids who grew up in, I'm, I'm experiencing that a lot actually living in El Paso, where, mm -hmm. you know, if you say, you know, fuck this or whatever, it's not quite that serious because mm -hmm. your grandmother doesn't really give a shit if you say fuck, right? Well, that, yeah, yeah. Also, like that's, that's, that's definitely part of it. And also I think 
at least I know with Christine, she she wrote, she's written a lot when she was in France. She was a journalist for a while, so she mm -hmm. has an appreciation for language. And I, she does this to this day. A phrase that she just finds that tickles her. It could be a really you know, obscene, kind of disgusting <laughs> phrase. She'll laugh at as a free, but you got, I love the English language. You know, I never heard that one. <laughs> Fucking cocksucker, blah, blah, blah. I love that phrase. You know, just, we do cuss just, really good. We do cuss you know, really well. Really good. And like to this day, she'll be like, she'll be like uh, Jewel, you know, I don't know, you know, you got to do your homework and shit. Mom, language. Because <laughs> she just likes the phrase. That's yeah, like right, right, right. Phrase, she just likes it. I love that phrase and shit. Well, here, well, you here it's like it's like you know, I was at this thing and we were uh, we were printing T-shirts for uh, border stuff, right? Mm. All this mess over at the border, and um, one of the shirts that we printed said "Chinga la migra," right? Which means mm. "fuck the border patrol." But <laughs> right. chinga. It doesn't have that same sting as fuck, right? Mm, like saying mm. there's something about like fuck you, right? Right. Where it just it, I don't maybe I'm so culturally deep into it that it's just my own opinion, but I feel like th there is when you listen to even hip hop music from other uh, from other languages, they mm. they adopt two words that they incorporate into their rap that are not of their own native tongue. One is mm. the f word, and mm. one is guess what the n word. The N word, right? Those are the two that. So I feel like, I just feel like there's some kind of power behind those two words. Maybe yeah, even yeah, outside yeah. of a cultural context where, the N word in particular just doesn't it just sound oh, yeah. so fucking mean? It just it sounds does, it mean. Does. I don't know how it to does. how else to describe it. I know it's taken on such a weight, but it does though. No, that's mm -hmm. definitely true. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's also the perfect I, word for rap music because it has two syllables and you can just kind of slip it in there whenever, you, whenever you're missing two syllables the, <laughs> it does seem to go with a lot of stuff as does fuck for that matter yeah for sure so it's, it's, a, it's a real all they're, they're real all purpose word so that's yeah. true Dennis Leary um, had a great bit about that way back in the day about all the ways that you can use fuck like a noun verb Adverb, yeah, I think I might adjective. have heard that. Yeah, he was good with that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. he was good. Dennis Leary wasn't a bad comedian. He was like a little bit of a Bill Hicks light, but he was still he was still good. He was still good. Yeah, no, his angry thing. You know, he had a good stick. He he had a good routine for a while. I'm smoking really cigarettes. Did. Fuck you. That kind of shit. Fuck yeah. you. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, he was good. I like, I like, I like, and I like Rescue Me for a while. The first few years of that show were really good. They were. That was a great show, actually. Yeah. I used to watch yeah. that. That was right when FX was getting edgy. Right. right when there was exactly. like, right when you could say, I think you could say, I think they might have said fuck on one episode of Rescue Me. But this was back in like, what, 02, 03? Yeah. It was a while was ago. Like, exactly. It was like, oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're really cut. And there was sex in it and all that it kind sex. of yeah. And he played a really screwed up, as, you know, really screwed up character. But what I liked about it was, you know, He's a fireman, so by definition, and he's a good fireman. I mean, he's good at his job. So by mm -hmm. definition, he's going to be something about the guy that's admirable, of course. Right. What's more, you know, what's more admirable than a fireman, right? Fire. But he was such a fucked up individual and right. made no bones about it. They did that part where they had some good, you know, the characters around them. Tatum yeah. O'Neill's in this show. It's like, what is she doing here? Right, you know, right, he, right. He clearly had a, he clearly had a sympathy for screwed up people you know well I mean? dennis leary the only complaint i have about that show is too many sex scenes with dennis leary that's yes gonna, i don't want to see the, i don't want to see it, dennis leary have sex i know and, and it got worse as it went on for that stuff that's yeah <laughs> it really did it really did it's like is this this has been five minutes is this still going on okay. is this still going on yeah i know really yeah exactly right um, uh, but no that was a good one you know i was talking about prestige tv today before i got on the podcast with you i had a convo with uh old jordan and, oh yeah uh, yeah sure i've course, for, a lot to say yeah for yeah. him and, and for me both you know prestige tv is kind of a bugbear and so there's there's so much i could talk about with this but um he was dissuading me from ever watching the show ozark mm -mm, i like, haven't seen that yeah okay he was like, i mean Don't i read a lot of that well he well, was explaining it to me and it was like so it's, you know, because I was telling him that I, I, we both, okay, so basically our, our point of reference here is that we were both talking about how we both want, um, I didn't bring it up in the conversation, but we essentially want like a Gamora, but for mm -hmm. Appalachia, right? Right, okay, yeah. So what we want is this kind of like beautiful, amoral gangster story 
about rednecks in Appalachia with none mm-hmm. of the extra stuff put on. Right. And so I, brought, I was like, well, I heard about Ozark. And he's like, well, listen, Ozark is about a pair of yuppies who mm. take over the meth trade in Appalachia. And I was like, oh, yeah, got to get rid of that right off the bat, you know? <laughs> right, and he says yeah. that uh, the very first episode, Jason Bateman's character steals like a half a million dollars from the Mexican cartel. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, that's a problem right there because he'd be dead in 24 hours. Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's no way you get away with that, right? Mm-hmm. But our uh, what we were talking about with Prestige TV is that it always seems like you need to have some kind of in, right? Like, it's the, mm-hmm. it's the weeds model. It's... Uh, there has to be some kind of, again, yuppie couple who's involved in this seedy underbelly, whether it's Walter White or Mary Louise oh, Parker's character in Weeds or whatever. Right. It's like, but we just, we want that raw, st- we want the we want to mainline it. Throw us right into the world with the game. We don't need a, a proxy character, right? Right, like Just, right, just yeah. throw us in that shit. Yeah. Um, um, anyway. No, I, I mean, I think, I don't know, I mean, I'm confl- I think there's probably more... The Uh-oh. bar in New York that he came to, we were talking to him about it. I mean, I do think that there's probably more. There's a lot of bad, pre- quote unquote, prestige TV. I think there's just in general, there really is a lot of a lot of good TV, not just from here, but you, you know, if you have access to Netflix and Hulu uh, and everything from right. all over the world, um, I I think I still think I mean a lot of the problem with with these shows is like something with Ozark sounds like it's bad from the beginning because of the idea of like you need the in. Uh-huh. Um, like, like I, I was, I watched Weeds, you know, when it started. I like Mary Louise Parker, uh, yeah, me too. but they they go on too long. Like it was, a, if that show had been limited to two seasons, right? And it's if you look at it, kind of as a not so much as a crime show because it's more like a social comedy about, sure, you know, a, the suburbs, a woman making do and so on, and she goes through, and it was like a satire. It was good. But then the, you know, the show does well in the ratings. And this mm-hmm. is one thing where the British are better than the Americans generally. Mm-hmm. They just, they end the shows when they need to end. Yeah. And this exactly. one went on. I stopped after like three seasons. It was just becoming terrible. And I would check in a little bit or I watched a few of the Netflix one. And it, it just becomes, the shows become ludicrous. You know, it just you know who stayed terrible. with it? You know who weeds, who uh, had weeds as a favorite show uh, was my mother. My mother loved <laughs> weeds. She loved it. This, like, this show is so great. And so, you know, all these conversations that I do have with Jordan, I always, I think back to my mother, who is by no means a dumb woman, uh, right. who genuinely just enjoyed that show. You just know, it's like, this is something that we talked yeah. about recently, where it's like, I've been thinking about this lately, where the sitcom might be the, the premier artistic format. Actually, when it's at when it's at its best, I know we've. I mean, I, that may be the most underrated. I think the reason it's un, quote it's underrated is because most sitcoms are not that good, right? And they're and so you, and you so you get the impression that sitcoms suck. But when you really think, and if people are honest and they're not snobby and they don't try to be cool or whatever, if you if there if you're a human being who doesn't have a sitcom in the heart in your heart of that you love. There's probably something wrong with you. You know what <laughs> you I used to like? I used to. You know the priest? Because a great sitcom is one of the great. There just aren't many of them now. That's all. Right. You know, the when percentage I, is low, but. I mean, when I lived in uh, when I lived in Germany, we had one English language channel, and uh, mm. the sitcoms would be there was Friends, mm-hmm. Mad About You, uh, Just Shoot Me, mm-hmm. and then Frasier, and I loved Frasier. Frasier was like my favorite. Here I was, a ten-year-old boy. I was watching like Steven Seagal movies and playing playing Nintendo. But but Frasier for some reason just really clicked. I just liked mm-hmm. those characters for some reason. I just thought they right. were interesting. Um, but to kind of I mean, go I, back, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, you always say, you know, I was telling you this, mentioning it, like you know, I was saying like, uh, you know, we talked about this, but just in that example of how. Uh, you know, I've had my favorite sitcoms like Seinfeld, of course, 30 mm-hmm. Rock, I liked a lot. But I never really watched Friends when it was on. I watched it every now and then. You know, I was not a big Friends fan. And just because Jul- Julian was watching it on Netflix, he was going through like every episode. You know, right, he, right. he saw every episode of other sitcoms. 
Uh, um, and he's, you know, he's third, 12 years old, whatever. So it's just fun. He was watching it. Christine was watching with it. So I sat down, we're watching it together. And to my absolute, you know, surprise, I really enjoyed it because the, yeah. it's just sharp. The writing is good. Right. And you just get into that world and well, you really appreciate like it's, it's sharp. It's well, to, and the characters have their mm -hmm. way and you, you can appreciate the craftsmanship and just enjoy it. Just get over yourself and enjoy you know, or, or another sick. It doesn't have to be that sick, but I sure. really was surprised and I could appreciate, you know, in retrospect, why, uh, you know, What's enjoyable about, well, about it? You can see the skill behind the yeah, craft behind yeah. a sitcom that's not good. Right. You know? Well, I think I think that when you look at the structure of sitcoms as writers today, okay, so we are mostly trying to write novels. And right. you could compare a novel, I don't know, maybe to a miniseries, maybe to a, a movie. A novella right. would be a movie, right? Um, right. But there's something to be said for the way that, you know, Charles Dickens wrote in mm -hmm. the serial, you know? The serial, right. And I think that this is what I'm trying to do. I think writers need to bring back the serial and we need to look at sitcoms because what I'm trying to do with my writing is actually write, you know, a rural crime sitcom, essentially, mm -hmm. where, you know, I'm releasing these things 15,000 words at a time and they're essentially conceived of as sitcom episodes. Um, and the reason why is this. And I don't think sitcom writers did this on purpose. They didn't know that they were doing this. Like they were hired to do a job where it's mm. like, okay, you have to pump out 30 episodes every year and it's a weekly show and it's going to be fixed camera. You have to be right. in this house. Maybe we can do, okay, the house, the coffee shop. We can maybe do something else, maybe if budget allows, right? Right. And so what these guys had to do and what they were so brilliant about doing is that they wrote these things that weren't really plays because there wasn't monologuing. There right. was actual dialogue back and forth between characters, but it was where mm. there had to be the zippiness. Not right. funniness, but zippiness, right? right? It had to move. Of course, there's a laugh track there telling you, oh, this is funny, oh, this is funny. Right, in the that, traditional sitcom. In the traditional yeah, yeah. sitcom, but that's right. not the point. The point is the zippiness. And right. shows today that are still good still have that back and forth, that quickness that keeps you on your toes I think of like something like Veronica Mars, right? Where you watch right, that and it's right. like the dialogue yeah. is going really fast. But anyway, so what they did was they had these characters and all they had to focus on was that season, right? They had to focus right. on getting out these certain amount of episodes. And then you'll find that after four or five years of doing this kind of stuff, they realize retrospectively, oh shit, we have these six characters who are completely fleshed out. Like mm. these are complete human beings now because we've been hanging out with them for four years. So mm. now we can do interesting things with them. What if so and so had a baby? Oh, what if so no, and so true. got together? I agree with you. Like, know what like I mean? Watching, you know what I was mentioning this also. Like this is an advantage of like we were talking about like Netflix or something. One thing that where it's you can really appreciate some of these shows. Like even Thirty Rock, I didn't really watch much when it was on. Right. Who's got the time? You got to sit through sure. commercials and blah blah blah. It's not at nine o'clock on Thursday night or whatever it is. But again, you're like, you know, Julian was watching them all on Netflix and I didn't watch every one, but I watched a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, when you can binge them, the first of all, there's no commercial. So it's yeah. 22 minutes. They're all like 22, 23 it's minutes. It's real quick. They're really quick. And you, first, that really, you can really appreciate the structure, the writing, and just enjoy them. But you can shoot through a whole bunch of them and you really can appreciate what you were just saying is. Yeah, watching you could really see the progression. Like I, I noticed it with Thirty Rock, and I definitely noticed it with Friends. The early up first season or two are okay, and then you know it's first thing well, though, isn't it? It's always like it's, it's a, it's a rocky, end, you, it's a rocky first couple seasons. Seinfeld was definitely that one. Uh -huh. I mean, they barely survived. I remember that when it was on. The ratings were terrible. It's a very unusual kind of sitcom at the time. And as the show goes on, and especially you notice this when you can binge them like on Netflix. You're right. The characters get deeper. They do all these, and it really becomes not just funny, but you're really into the characters. So and so is going to have a baby. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Jennifer Addison's dating. You know, what, what's his name? Uh, Matt, uh, Le Matt LeBlanc. No, Matt the other Le guy. No, the, uh, the Matthew Perry. Perry. Matt, you know, I know she. Uh, she was with. Um, What's his name? Another smart one, David Schwimmer, for a while, right? Oh, was she okay? And then I, then I they broke up. So they, but then they work off of that for for several seasons. Mm -hmm. So you're like, uh, 
and it becomes so they really get into like interesting characterization in a sitcom sure. format. And you're right, the best sitcoms grow over time, and that makes them. And, but you could see that better in retrospect when now, like with Netflix, you couldn't mm-hmm. do this before. You could watch like a whole five years in a in a couple of months, in a month or two. Well, you it's know, like binge or in a week if you wanted to, whatever. But over a short period of time, and another thing is, I realize that they're a little bit. I, I don't know, they're a different type of story, but in a certain sense, they're like a traditional, like, like a, they're totally different, but like, like a traditional detective story or mystery is a very struck, very set structure and they work variations. And that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. part of the fun, I think, of a sitcom is seeing a certain structure very well um, executed, like Cheers. Yeah, it's yeah, always yeah, yeah. in the bar. Sam's going to do this. You know, that character's going to do that. The mailman guy, Woody's going to say that. Right, right, Buddy, right. You know, so-and-so's going to say that. Woody Harrelson will say this. The post, the, the mailman, Elizabeth's mother will say that. But then there are surprises within that. And that's somehow very satisfying as, a, as, a, as an audience. Right. You know what I mean? Right, and most right. art forms don't do that. So there's something about that where I think that to, to an audience person, whether it's in writing or a, or a show, mm-hmm. if you can find that balance between the comfort of a set structure, but you work variations within it and it's very sharp within that structure, something about that is very satisfying. Well, I know, I've know i noticed one one sitcom trope that I love that I haven't been able to pull off yet, but I've been kind of studying is the, so you have the A and the B plot, right? Mm-hmm, right. And they're linked thematically. Even if the A and B people, the A plot has no bearing on the B plot whatsoever. Mm. They're they're similar. Somebody lied, right? Mm, or right, somebody okay. was irresponsible, yeah. or right. something like that. And so, yeah, yeah. but what the really successful ones do is at the end of the episode in the third act, the A and B plot line, because two different people lied, you end up with those two plot lines colliding and those yeah, two yeah. lies, uh, like hurting each other. You they know what I mean? Right. Like exactly the classic right. setup is is you know obviously the third act. It would be A and B. Two characters have lied about something, and they end up going each going on a date with somebody, but the, they go to the same place, right? Right, right. And then yeah. those lies have to come to the surface, and it's very comical watching everybody try right. to figure it out. That, so that's, that's what that's what they do so well, and it's and it's masterful, man. Like to pull that off in twenty two minutes. Forget, I know. Forget over it, dude. And over it's great. Again. It's great. Yeah. Curb Your Enthusiasm um, uh, is absolutely is, is one of the best shows for the the A and B uh-huh. the A and B plot. Larry David, I mean, those are great. That's a great sitcom. You know, it's oh, total it different. Yeah. It is great. He doesn't have he doesn't have the laugh track, but he always has like an A and B. Sometimes even a C, like a little bit of a C plot. But there's always at least two plots, mm-hmm. and of course, it always ends up completely ending badly for him at the end. And you know that. <laughs> You're just wondering now, how is it going to be so bad? You know it's going to, and it's still hilarious. And, he's, and, and still... the thing with uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm is he normally fucks it up. He it's fucks normally it up his fault. And you know he's going to fuck it up. Yeah. Uh, he's going to say the wrong thing. He's going to give the kid that the, you know, the kid he thought was gay isn't gay at all. He totally misread the city. He's trying yeah, to be yeah, good. Yeah. He gives a six year old kid, oh, but your son's gay. I thought he was gay. How would I know he's not gay? You know? <laughs> Look it's at great. him. He wears a pink shirt. He's gay. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's great. Right, and and it just ends. You know, it's brilliant the way he does. But you're right. That's a that's really. Uh, and so it's like it's it, a, so I guess not to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but like no, in, no. in a in a so what I'm saying is what the sitcom was able to do was it's this great marriage of the microscopic and the macroscopic, which is something I've been thinking about in writing a lot. Right. Mm. So it's this idea of, you know, say you're working on a novella, you focus on that extremely closely, right? You, mm-hmm. you, there's no, there's nothing else outside of how do we make this particular plot engaging and get people from point A to point B, right? Right. But then you keep doing that, right? And I'm, I'm obsessed with this with writers because so few writers do it. You see it with musicians repeating a theme. You see it with oh, artists gosh. literally doing variations on a theme for their entire mm-hmm. career. But you see it very rarely with writers. And so my whole thought, again, and this is, of course, with my stuff, like Black Gum, Minor Storm, stuff like that, mm-hmm. the same characters, the same house, they get into a new sequence of shenanigans. My goal with that book 
and by that book I mean the current book, is to mm-hmm. make that work like a sitcom, right? Where there's like some mm-hmm. shenanigans, things get figured out. But my thought process is over the long term, after mm-hmm. I do six of these, ten of these, what it's like will people start to become attached to these characters? Mm. Then maybe I can really get into the drama aspect, you know? Mm-hmm. So taking it easy for the next several books and just trying to like make it funny, entertaining, whatever. Get people in. Yeah. Get people in. And then at that point, maybe pull the rug out from beneath them and be like, this is what we're doing now. Right? Yeah. No, I think that's a good I, I I also think that, you know, one of the areas where, again, I was, you know, like, you know, very surprisingly, and this is where, you know, when you follow your own, you have your own interests, and that's great, obviously, but sometimes like, you're led, it could be by, by anyone, someone you're with, a friend, you know, in this case, it's, you know, my kid, my own kid or whatever. Like he's, so he started watching uh Grey's Anatomy, which I never watched. I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen a single episode ever. <laughs> you know, so he's looking for stuff that he's going through, and he's like a completist. Starts at episode one, season one. This looks interesting. I like it. Now he's up to like season seven, episode whatever, two or whatever. And I've been watching some of them on and off. And again, this is not, and it's more of a dramedy. I mean, it's a drama. They have a lot of funny stuff, but it's not a sitcom. It's an hour long show. But what I like is I you learn how these are. This is totally popular entertainment. It's nothing, you know, groundbreaking or whatever in that sense. But again, like with good sitcoms, the craftsmanship, the acting, and the writing for what it is is very, very good. And he, as they watch, as you know, from the writing perspective, you think, I, you, know, you like to write stuff that maybe is, you know, adventurous or plays with form. Uh, but how can you wed that to? to forms that are very conventional and traditional, but well done and make that an interesting mix to again, try to get the, you know, in this case, the reader. And I, I don't see that often done in writing. You know, there are writers who are straightforward. You know, I'm going to write, I want to write, they're aiming for like bestseller stuff, pretty linear, pretty straightforward. You know, they go back there's exposition, pretty conventional, which is fine. Then you have writers who, play around, they could be bizarro, they could just, they may be realistic, but they play, more realistic, they play with form, then nobody reads, they're like, how come nobody reads me, you know? Uh, I don't understand. But trying to blend the two, you know what I mean? Uh, A conventional form and something non-conventional, you can learn a lot from the conventional stuff, how you could apply it to stuff that may be a little bit more adventurous. I think, I'm finding that very, an interesting area to look at. I really am. Oh yeah. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Okay, sorry about that. Not sorry. Um, uh, anyway, I was I was gonna say I think that in my uh, kind of goings on as a oh wow it really did cut actually. We, we, Where did we get cut? It looks like I heard everything that you were saying. You just couldn't hear me, but then it actually oh. cut and then it came oh, back. Sorry. So we're recording right. again. It's all good, and the other one is saved, so we'll be fine. Um, all right. Anyhow. Uh, in my goings on as somebody who has been really into the avant-garde and mm-hmm. really into the weird and the bizarre, um, I think that you, in the same way that somebody who kind of followed the rules would perhaps have become bored by them and mm-hmm. need to, you know, there's always, there's that image of the, of the uptight businessman who takes acid and takes all of his clothes off and, goes <laughs> and runs in a field, Right. right? Well, I've spent most of my life running in that field. I want that suit back, you know, Mm. like I want to wear that tie. And so I think that there is a push and a pull and a balance between the two things. And so for me, as somebody who's really enjoyed the avant-garde stuff, I've suddenly become extremely interested in what some might consider just banal kind of formalism. I'm interested in how these people made this shit work. Basically. I'm right. I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm finding it very similar, whether it's sitcoms or I don't know if it was cut, like even watching like Grey's Anatomy in retrospect. Yeah. Oh, I'm no, actually, I heard like, all that. Yeah, we heard. All yeah, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how how they making that work. And I also like, you know, in, let's say like in writing um, writers who do kind of mix like Paul Auster, let's say. Uh-huh. You know, uh, take sort of an, you know, experimental approach, but using traditional mystery elements. 
how do you make, you know, how can you make something, the both goal would be to like write something that's kind of on the adventurous side or whatever you want to say, but is as gripping and interesting to somebody as the most banal, yep. you know, right. uh, form. If you, that kind of, how do you do that? Right. Is that, you know, and trying to, trying to achieve that is something that's, I find very interesting to try to, to try to do. Because you can learn a lot from the, the banal that's really well done, if you want to call it banal. But you know yeah. what I mean, in that sense. Well, I agree so, yeah, with you. I mean, like, right. uh, I mean, think of like sitcom plots, right? You know, somebody right. somebody is tasked with, you know, they're working at a corporation and their boss says, hey, I need you to watch my dog over the weekend. You see where this is going, right? Oh, yeah, And it's right, like, and they right. go to watch the dog and the dog is a monster and runs out of right. the room and... I, and they have to chase really, them, and you know. yeah, and it is banal. Exactly, that's a lot of sitcom plots are kind of like that, right? But exactly. I'll tell you what: as soon as that dog escapes from the house, people are going to watch to see how it pans out. <laughs> Without then, fail, dude. It's like, and I don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the most cultured art critic out there. If if somebody has sat you down and clockwork oranged you into watching the first ten minutes of a sitcom you're gonna watch the last 12 no right and what you you know and what the thing is too like based depending on what sitcom it is sure you know you're like 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 if it's like if it's larry david if it's curb your enthusiasm he was given a dog to watch the fun will be like the dog runs away the fun will be the complete disaster and despair and mess Uh larry's gonna make it even worse trying to get the dog back right that will be right if it's friends, it'll get you know, it to like say, like curb your enthusiasm. would get it to the point where it probably would have been better if the dog just never came back. Right, never came all. back. Right. Yeah. Uh, if the six friends on friends were when they're all living in the same, pretty much in the same apartment or whatever, if they get the dog and the dog escapes, the fun will be seeing them like quibble and argue about what strategy to take to get the dog yeah, back, right, and they're right. blaming each other. Right, and, you right, know, right. So that's the thing with sitcoms too. Like you could, that would be interesting. Like if you had the same exact plot in different sitcoms, how each one is different. Like Friends would be right. one thing, Curb Your Enthusiasm would be another. You know, Thirty Rock would be Liz Lemon arguing with Alec Baldwin about Alec Baldwin would start pontificating about dogs and Liz yeah, Lemon right, right, wants right. to get the dog. You know, that would be. That's the thing about sitcoms, right? Right. right. You know, you take this banal situation and then you see these characters. The best sitcoms, though, you're right, have very sharply etched characters. Yeah. So you just know, right, that that's really... Well, you know. and it just, I mean, it is kind of also, I feel like it's an underutilized form because even if there isn't the sharpest writing, you could take a show like Full House, mm-hmm. which I would argue was extremely poorly written consistently, mm-hmm. but yet somehow people still gravitated towards it. I don't know what to make of something like Full House. I, right, maybe right. Maybe it was well-constructed. Yeah. I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe it was just people tuning in because they liked the characters, I guess. But I, I don't know. Remember. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't – because that one I never even – it's a good question. Because some, some – there are a lot of sitcoms that I don't think were that great that did well, too, mm-hmm. like anything else. So mm-hmm. um, – but like, you know – Let's see what some of the again, best are. Some of the best. So we have Seinfeld uh, – Fresh Prince I, I, of Bel Air has to be up in the that top was, five. No, that was really good. Yeah, it was. Um, and that's another one I never even watched till Cedric started getting them on DVD. He liked them as a oh, teenager. Oh, really? Interesting. I never watched that. And it, no, it's good. Yeah, no, it's really good. That's a great show. Um, yeah. And then like yeah. Boy, Boy Meets World is another great one. Oh, I never even saw that. Okay. Frasier, yeah. of uh, course. So Frasier. I'll, just, I'll just name the ones that I watched. Frasier. Yeah. Uh, News Radio, Just Shoot Me, uh, Mad About there, You. Yeah. Um, Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser. It's a great duo. They were good. That it's kind of crazy really to good. say that like there was a sitcom with Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser. It's like, wait, you mean like two of the best actors that were alive at the time? You know, it's we're like, doing a sitcom. You were doing I a sitcom, know. right? 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 Uh, Martin was great. Um, what else was really good? I like Cheers. I mean, I thought Cheers. Cheers. Was a really good oh, show. okay. Yeah, so yeah. we can go that. See, this I'm talking about all this '90s shit. We could go back even further, right? So, Cheers, All in the Family. All in the Family, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, I liked Mary Tyler Moore when I was a kid. That the was Jeffersons. Really Jeffersons. Uh, what else? You know, Cosby um, Show. We got to name the Cosby Show, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, rest in peace, was, his legacy, but still. Rest in peace, but the show's the show. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we got it, yeah. Um, 
No, and then you have a recent ones like Thirty Rock, Parks and Recreation. I thought was oh, a great sitcom. So great, Parks and Rec yeah. is great. Yeah, yeah, that is a great. Yeah, The yeah. Office was probably. I think The Office. My favorite shows of all time go The Wire and then The Office. The Office is great, yeah. yeah. And what's good is both of them, the British and the American, in different ways. Because the American went a lot farther because it was on for so many years. Nine years. Um, where, where the other thing is like like those those shows. Some sitcoms too, I think, get their greatness from they take something with is also like a kernel of like real like reality, like The yeah, Office. Yeah, yeah. Is something almost any human being can appreciate because sure. that's life. And most people do work in an office, mm-hmm. you know, and it just took something that's a miserable situation and, you know, exaggerated it. And it was truthful. And it's a comedy, just, but it's truthful. Also, just know? this kind of like, I'm just obsessed with this juxtaposition be, between the relatively small amount of time, 20, 25 minutes, mm-hmm. and the, the, the temporality of the sitcom as like, a nine-year endeavor made up of 22-minute parts. You right. see what I'm saying? Yeah. On yeah, a, yeah, on a weekly a basis. You know what I mean? So it's these very small digestible chunks done, uh, what will we say, 25 times over mm-hmm. the course of nine years. I'm just, I'm obsessed with the idea of that as a artistic right, right. schedule. That just seems like such a great way yeah. to do it. Don't, don't wait six years and dump a 800 page novel on people. Right. Do, right. Do, do this, do this every week for nine years. For nine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. And it, the, the advantage of that too is, you know, even the great shows occasionally have a dud, you know, you come back next week and, and you, people forget the forget the dud because next week it's a good show. Yeah. You know, of course, that's so be much, shitty episodes. Of course. Yeah, of course. Right. right. But the thing is, if you set, if you're coming up with that many shows, not everything is riding on the 800 page novel. 800 pages, you got at least did a triple. It's not a home yeah. run. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Exactly. That's why so many careers, uh, rest in peace, Garth Risk Hallberg, have just been buried by the epic <laughs> exactly. novel. What the, the 20... hubris on that to, that guy to write a 1970s exactly. New York novel when he was born uh, in 1982 or whatever? Yeah, yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, if you're gonna put out 25, you know, episodes of a 22 minute show, uh, yeah. So this one, you know, you popped out the third base. Well, you're up in a couple innings. Next time you've got a double. There you, you know, go. That's, it's, there you go. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have um, the ability to fail, and you can't fail consistently. That's why so many sitcoms go off the right. air. It's like, oh, you were just, you sucked. You were shitty. You were shitty too often. Right, right, but, right. Um, and the other one I'll mention is, you know, and you got to see this because I know you'll you'll die, is uh, Faulty Towers with John Cleese. Oh, that you was were mentioning that. Yeah, I haven't seen it, that yet. It's yeah, as good as any sitcom I've ever. It's only about 12 episodes that he did. And mm-hmm. that's what he did after Monty Python ended, you know. So this is, that was on in the made early 80s probably uh. about this very eccentric nasty uh hotel owner in england in cornwall and every episode it's you know something goes completely awry yeah. he's got a, his wife uh who's like just completely browbeats him all the time with good reason mm-hmm. actually basil faulty he's got a woman who works he's kind of having an affair with her that like she's like even kind of treats him kind of not great. She sees sees him for what he is. His mm-hmm. wife knows what's going on, but really right. doesn't care. He has one real staff member who's a Spanish guy who speaks barely any English. Uh, and every episode is just like is a disaster. There's one where a food inspector comes. You know it's going to end badly. The episode actually ends after all these shenanigans with the guy picking up his plate to eat his food. And there's a rat on the plate. That's how the episode <laughs> ends. And it all makes perfect sense right, the way it's right, done. Right. No, no, you got it. See if you can stream it or get it. It's, it's fantastic. I will check that out. Yeah, yeah no, it's I will fantastic. Check that out. Uh, I'm, yeah, I've just been thinking. Uh, yeah, I just as a as a person who is, I don't know. I I know you like to write novels, but you write very short novels too. So you yeah, might be, you might right. be sympathetic to what I'm saying, but I just I get not winded, but I feel like I feel like my ideas come in bursts, right? And I feel like I'm not necessarily a short story writer because I have to be enticed by an idea that's bigger than a short story. Mm. But then the curse is that I also get kind of bored once things go a little bit too long. So it feels like uh, going back to the Dickens model, the serial format, the the sitcom, 
that might actually be my wheelhouse right there. Right. Like a, like a big story told in parts. Well, you know what I think it is too partly? I was thinking of this is in one of um, Thomas Bernhardt's, Thomas Bernhardt's novels. I forgot oh, which one God, it is. So I read good. all parts. Yeah, he's, he's so, so good. good. Yeah, he was brilliant. This one part where you know, and one dark. of his narrators, and dark, yeah, yeah, and very funny, as dark as he is. One of his narrators, who's of course a writer, you know, they all, mm-hmm. is talking about something, and he's, you know, he's coming from somewhere. He's complaining about something, of course, raving on and on, as the, all his narrators do. Uh-huh. And he's going to get on a train, and he's t- thinking about. I think it's one where he's talking about other writers, right. and he's basically says something along these lines. It's something like this, where he's like. I didn't want to pick up, you know, I'd have to pick up that person's book and it would just be describing the thing that I hate to do when I write, describing all the realistic furniture. He didn't mean literally furniture, (laughs) just like all the realistic details, which he doesn't have time for and has no interest in. Right. You know, I I wonder, he's writing a novel, but I don't want, you know, the weather was like this and the clothes were like that and so and so forth. I just, I just. And he goes on for like three pages. I detested the realistic furniture. It was going to be pages and pages of useless realistic oh, furniture. And and I think that what you were just saying, I know this is how I feel, is one reason I think I like to write things, again, right, but not, not short stories per se. I like to develop a plot. I love a good plot. Uh-huh, and, you know, right. so it's going to be longer than a short story. We can develop the plot, but not a long novel is first of all i just start to get tired it's hard yeah, to do but right. i don't i'm not and i get this sense with you too i don't really i think a lot of the people we know who are writers at heart are realists yeah even though they may write crime and stuff a lot of crime i think more crime writers than not are basically realists in other words they like they their uh, aesthetic creed whether they want to admit it or not is realism Sure. Which is, you know, describing the shirt somebody wore and the uh-huh. color of the shirt and the emotions of the weather was like that. All the stuff Bernard's yeah. raving yeah. about. Right, right. And I realize I don't like that. I mean, I read. Paint on the walls and all this other bullshit. Hello? Oh, no, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, yeah. And. So the little, the, as little of that as possible as I could get away with, I'll tell because you need to have some. And I, when I read you, I get the same feeling. Like you really don't want to spend page because a lot of novels are long because they have all this real, essentially realistic furniture. Uh, and I don't, I love it. Fuck, and I, and I think that's one thing. Like you're talking about sitcoms, tying it to sitcoms. Sitcoms are so artificial, right? It's, mm-hmm. what, what form is more artificial than every show takes place in a bar oh or God. six friends in a room and they have this kind of, it's so, the form is so, they don't have the realistic furniture. I'm loving they just have, with this. this. It's a so shortcut and they get to the heart of things and they don't have all the bull. Rachel has her hair this way and she wears her yes. clothes and, right? That's exactly. it. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> you nailed it, dude. You nailed it. No realistic furniture. Yeah, and that is the appeal. I bet to me, I think I, you would probably agree. Probably agree. That's one of the great appeals of the sitcom. And trying to get that in writing is why is a challenge. And why I prefer it short. You seem to prefer it short. I don't. Yeah. If you, you know. Well, and it's also it's all, it's also about like what you find interesting, right? Yes. So I mean, right. you, you can you can look at this with Jack Waters, right? So Jack Waters starts out ostensibly about a card player who gets involved in a revolution, right? Mm, and, right. Uh, you know, sorry for anybody listening who this might spoil, but about <laughs> two thirds of the way through the book, your focus kind of shifts from Jack Waters uh, to the wife of a diplomat, right? Right. Yeah. Who's kind of connected in a not tangential, but not direct also Not way. direct, right. Uh, but you can almost see Scott, the writer, being like, oh, this is what's interesting. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's this kind of free woman what? who's with this boring guy, but who's actually, she has agency within this whole, you know, Caribbean revolutionary atmosphere. And she's actually right. taking matters into her own hands against this sort of monstrous uh, dictator, dictator who's doing awful things. And it's like, and you can see it shifts and then. 
you know, towards the end of the third act, it's like, and now we're back to Jack. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. like, but that's what's interesting. Like, that's what I find interesting in movies, too. When you can feel, uh, for example, like a director, like a director's mm. interest, move. To, and this mm. happened so much more often, I think, in the 70s. Yeah, uh, Before yeah. the blockbuster film and before it had to be boom, boom, boom. You would see mm. these kind of meandering movies where it seemed almost like the director's I would be caught by a wandering butterfly, right? Yes, and you would follow right. that butterfly <laughs> into some yes. some B subplot for thirty minutes, and then loop, loop back around to where and Zion back to where we were. Yes, and, and it's yeah. just it's kind of a forgotten, uh, you know, mode, yeah. I guess. It, it's kind of a forgotten mode where you can kind of wander, and it's not so much about like you know, like whether it's the blockbuster mentality or just sort of like this kind of you know, more or less linear. I have to fill in all the blanks and, you know, coming back that sort of fill in all the realist, realist realism. I just don't find that very, you know, you're right. It's just very, it can be very, very, very tedious in seventies movies. And, you know, even in um, getting away from the fact, you know, they were like art house, like a lot of the European film sixties and seventies, forgetting about the, the veneer or the, you yeah, know, the yeah. reputation of an art house film, blah, blah, blah. Right. The freedom of the storytelling, where they'll just go where they're going to go. You yep. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they'll follow these characters, and you watch a Truffaut film or a Godard film. Truffaut is very accessible, right? You know, he's not, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like, or you, you'll watch a Herzog film or a Fassbender film, and the, the story will go where it goes. Well, I think I, I remember, like, I, growing up watching movies in, obviously, in the 90s and, uh, you know, two thousands. That would like the the blockbuster format was just the way films were made. Mm. And I remember specifically. And this is going to seem like kind of a goofy movie uh, for this to like have enlightened me on it. But uh, I was watching TV and the Seven Ups came on. Mm. Do, oh, do you yeah, remember the yeah. Seven Ups? Yeah, sure. Uh, great, one of the great chases, of course, of all time. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, but it it had that feeling and i remember feeling so knocked off course right yeah i was just like what's going on here like there there are these beats that go on way too long and others that are too short you know like but i I, I loved it i was like this is even like a it's even like a great film like i mean even films that are really like good like now they're just classic you know 70s cinema like you can't get more classic like the french connection you watch that now, there's so many scenes of Gene Hackman just standing in the cold. Like, you're talking about the beats. Yeah, He's watching, right. you know, Fernando Ray as he comes out of the fancy restaurant. Mm-hmm. This poor cop standing out in the cold right. eating a sandwich with a car. That stuff goes on a while. It's not boring or anything. No. But you're right. The, the story doesn't, like, is not obsessed with A, B, C, boom, mm-hmm. boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Or Clue with Jane Fund. There's this long scenes where they're talking to her shrink. You know, it, and it, she goes home. She likes to join. She reads a book. Uh, right. I mean, then I love that shit. It, I love that shit yeah. so much. It's like whenever uh, the new Coen Brothers movie. Did you watch the new Coen Brothers movie? Oh no, no, yeah, I gotta see. Yeah. Oh, did okay. you like well, it? Or, yeah, I yeah. loved it. I loved it. I thought yeah. it was great. But there they are still these, do that kind of stuff. There are these that. long yeah. scenes. There's a there's a great uh, sub one of the stories because you know it's an anthology film, right? So it's right. six different stories. There's one with uh, Tom Waits where he's an old prospector and Mm. there are these long scenes of him just doing prospector stuff. Mm -hmm. Like what you would actually do to like find gold. And it's just like, oh, this is heaven to me. I love it. Now I don't, now I got to say, I don't, there are experimental films that I've seen that have been these kind of process things. I don't like those. I do like them to go somewhere. But I'm you know, more than I know, willing I, to. I'm more than willing know, to hang out. I know. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not like. Uh, I like a. I like a story. It doesn't have to be told in a straight in a very, con- for lack of a better word, a conventional. Uh, it has. Okay. I like something that goes somewhere. Somewhere, like, yeah. Um, uh, like for that, you know, going by that, like Jean Luc Godard, for example, has never been of all the great uh, French direct French directors. I more appreciate what he's brought to cinema he's not my favorite because a lot of his films is just so they just don't go anywhere right and they're just right. like so 
the ideas are in them, but, but but one of the few films, or one of the films from his early films, he, uh, he had some plots in some of his early films. Contempt, which has really a strong story in its way, where you know Bridget mm-hmm. Bardot and the love stuff, yeah. is fantastic because it still right. has all that Godardian stuff, but it really has something you care about. That combination is potent. So right. I agree with you. Right. Like this, it's got really go experimental I mean, stuff. It's got to go somewhere. Right? I see. I, I see a lot of stuff. I follow. Uh... Dennis Cooper's blog a lot. Mm, yeah. And, and and Cooper is one of those guys who's very much into avant-garde music and movies and and mm. books and he appears to me to be a person who genuinely enjoys those things for their mm. kind of weirdness and avant-gardeness, if you right, will. Right, right. And yeah. for me, I, I I follow those rabbit holes to a certain extent, but there'll be times where he'll link to a filmmaker you know, who made this five minute movie of this very beautiful, uh, you know, light reflecting off of a puddle. Right. And, like a sand brackage film or something. Yeah. And yeah, it goes yeah, on yeah. for five minutes and I'm right, like, right, oh, right. it's pretty, but I know what you mean. I need, yeah, I yeah, need yeah. both. I mean, I could look at the puddle. I will look at the puddle for three minutes. Right. If, if you've got a movie around that puddle. You know right, what I mean? I will follow you insofar the puddle actually takes me places. Right. But I will not watch a puddle for the sake of watching a puddle because right. I can go outside and watch a fucking puddle. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Com- completely, I mean, when I was in college, I actually you know, signed up for some course that turned out like the professor. We had some New York filmmakers, under, uh, you know, underground filmmakers who were the professors. I didn't, you know, I found uh, okay. that at the time. Cool. Uh, and it was, I'm glad I took these classes because they exposed me to something I never would have known about. But they were really into, there was one guy, Ken Jacobs, who's actually a very famous filmmaker, and another guy, Larry Goddard, uh, these two professors at Binghamton, they had a good film co- you know, studies program, but they really were into non-narrative film, not yeah, completely right. on. Uh, there was one film that was called, it's famous. It's called The Flicker. It's literally a okay. black and white flicker for about 30 minutes, 35. And oh, we watched wow, this really? in a in a big intro to film. That was so it was a big lecture hall of freshmen. Oh, Nobody boy. knew what we were getting into when we oh, took this boy. Oh, boy. And, the, and so Larry Gonheim turned everybody on to the flicker. He was really funny. He's like, so, so you guys, it's like an old hip. Did you guys like the film? Everyone's like, what the fuck was that? You know, it's like, it was when did the movie start? Where was the I movie? Know, and he's like, no, no, the director trying, basically he's timing the flicker to human libido. He's talking uh, to like a bunch of 18 year old okay. freshmen. Gotcha. I mean, it was really, gotcha. uh, so we saw a lot it's of a films like move. that. That's a bold it's move. A, it is a bold move. So I'm pretty well acquainted, but again, same thing. It was like, I, I realized that, you know, I didn't, I'll watch that, some of that stuff just to see what's going on, but I really like some kind of narrative. I watch, a, I- I watch a strobe light in like a Gaspar No movie, right? Like right, in, in right. Enter the oh, Void, I'll watch yeah. that that strobe go for a little bit too long where it gets uncomfortable. You're like, yeah. oh shit, I don't know if I feel right. David Lynch, another classic example yes, of just right. stuff that goes a little bit too long and you feel a little Hodorowsky. I mean, Hodorowsky. All, yeah. all these guys yeah. are, are great at making it just a little bit uncomfortable, but I won't. Uh, movie does not work for me as an endurance test. Right. Because right. I, I'm the kind of person who. Um, I'm not film oriented. I do like <laughs> books and music more, so mm. I have to kind of be, I have to be seduced into watching movies. You know right. what I mean? Like I can't just be like, here's an endurance test. Oh, also by the way, it's also a movie. I'm like, I don't. I'm my default. If somebody asks me if I want to watch a movie, is no. So you have to. <laughs> I have to be. I have to be. I have to be romanced. A little right. bit. Yeah. Speaking of no, did you see the preview for the new one that's coming that he did? No, was, the, uh, the dance party one? one where everyone takes this crazy drug and it, like in, in the and it's like a, like a a raid like a dance party or something. Oh, that and sounds they, like something. Oh I no, need to see it looks. I saw something. I forgot what I even saw. God, he's one of my I, favorites. I watched. I saw a movie and that was a, a preview for it. Um, it looks. Oh my goodness! Oh, yeah, it's, it's probably, is, it called, it's, is it called Climax? Climax, yeah. Well, it just oh, no. I just I just looked up Gaspar No, and the first article that came up was Gaspar No walked out of Black Panther. I'm like, my man, right here. <laughs> we now, are on. We are, we should just it, we should be best friends. It's a preview. A preview's got to be on YouTube, 
you gotta looks you like gotta it watch is. it. Yeah. Oh no no no! It was it looks. I can't wait to see this. Well, because it looks his, like la- total his last immersion. one was his last yeah. one was boring as fuck. Love. Did oh you yeah, watch yeah. That one. His last one was the only one so far that I haven't liked on any pretty much God, on it any was level. So boring, yeah. dude. It's just yeah, like yeah. I mean, irreversible. Probably top ten for me. Uh, Enter the void. Not top ten, but not you have, you 10, have but to admire it. You have you know? to admire it. It was still compelling enough, right? It was kind of tedious, but it was yeah. still compelling. And enough. then you get love, and love was just all the tedium and none of the none of the yeah, cool stuff. The, I'm sorry cool if I'm not. Stuff. I'm sorry if I'm not wowed by a three dimensional cum shot. I've right, seen right. porn. I know it's what. Still, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think directors now they got to be very leery when they do sex because porn's everywhere. It is. And yeah, it's I not shocking it's, anymore. It's not shocking anymore. It's just too hard to. It's difficult to do. And, yeah. and have any real impact. You know what I mean? You could just watch porn anytime, anywhere, on your phone, whatever that is, for better or worse. You know, when that, not even getting into that. It's hard to, it's hard to, you know, compete with that. You know, yeah. uh, it really is. Yeah. And yeah. That's the wrong way to go to try to get other people scared or shock people at this point. It really is. Yeah, I don't, yeah, you I know. don't think that, you know, I don't think that sex or violence really or I violence that, either. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that um, me, I think that meanness knows no. Uh, it doesn't. It, it's not a one-to-one connection to a visual thing, right? Because you could take a movie like L, which was an an, an extremely mean movie that mm, I loved. Mm-hmm, right. And there's there's nothing. I mean, there's obviously sex and rape in the movie, but mm. there's nothing really explicit in L. Nothing right. super no, explicit. Isn't. It's just a mean movie. Yeah. And it's a mean movie, and it and um, I think you know you gotta you gotta be mean, and you gotta do some of the a couple of the basic things of telling a story, which is when you get people involved. The old oldest thing in the book, uh-huh. like David Lynch does, you or L did, you get people involved with the characters. Like, mm-hmm. why was the end of um, Twin Peaks: The Return so disturbing? It's because it just you just wanted it to be a certain way because you love those characters, right? And you know it's Lynch, but you know who doesn't want to see Agent Cooper be Agent Cooper mm-hmm. and Laura Palmer? You know now that she's back, apparently, you know, certainly right. some sort of like nice, satisfying closure, even against your better judgment. You know it's Lynch. You you're hoping against hope, and this this really disturbing sort of ending on this uh, 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 unresolved note. That's disturbing. It's not because you saw, you know, Cheryl Lee's vagina or the cum shot Mm, or anything mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. It's because of all the emotions invested and that it just ended on a way that leaves you disturbed. That's how you disturb people now. Or meanness, like with L, but L too, you really felt, not felt like warm and fuzzy. I would never call Paul Verhoeven or Israel Huppert warm or fuzzy. But you got involved with those characters, and it's sardonic, and that's how you get. I agree. That's how I think you could be disturbing now. It's not through chopping off a head or gouging out oh, an eye. How or, many chopped know. off heads have we seen at this point? Right, exactly. It's not. It's not Who cares unique. Anymore? It's not unique. Right, right, Unless you right. want to get more realistic with it, because real beheadings are much grosser than most right, movie right. beheadings. You know. Cannibal but, Holocaust will always be disturbing because you see real turtle, out of The turtle, the gets turtle its that's, head cut off. Yeah, that's extremely hard to watch. I've seen it twice. I own it, and I still and I love. I think it's a that, brilliant film. It I can't watch film. it over. It's a brilliant. I can't watch it over and over and over because it's it's hard to watch. The, you know? the, the turtle is the hardest part. The little the rodent thing is less difficult but still gross. The, the turtle uh, is really hard. The to turtle's watch. hard. Yeah, no, oh yeah the God, turtle's yeah, hard because yeah. they they don't just cut its head off. They like they they. Gutted. They rip they, off the shell. They rip the shell yeah. and the guts come out. And, uh, I know. So oh my god! I it's know. So no, really, gross. But, it really um, is. But on that note, that's the podcast right there, sir. Okay, ending on Cannibal Holocaust is a good way to end. It's always a good way to end it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but hey, I uh, I really appreciate your time, Scott, and uh, thank you oh, for absolutely. coming always on the fun. show. Yeah, of course, always a pleasure. <laughs>